Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000-ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making the show economically viable. They are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resources Corporation, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold and Silver, Precipitate Gold, and Renaissance Gold. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again economist Walter J. John Williams, more commonly known as John Williams. John received his bachelor's degree in economics from Dartmouth College in 1971, where he graduated cum laude. And he was awarded an MBA from Dartmouth's Amos Tuck School of Business Administration in 1972, where he was named an Edward Tuck Scholar. During his career as a consulting economist, John has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies. For more than 25 years, he has uh, been a private consulting economist. And out of necessity, he became a specialist in government economic reporting, where he learned that virtually all economic stats quoted by the U.S. government are spun using optimistic assumptions that often bear little reality, but make politicians look good and put money in the pockets of Wall Street. John writes the Shadow Government Statistics newsletter and has uh, and his work has been recognized by the mainstream media where he has been quoted in uh, publications like the New York Times and Investor's Business Daily. However, I would like to add that while John has gotten some attention from the mainstream media, what he has to say, unfortunately, is largely drowned out by the mainstream media that uh, pay more attention uh, and this, I think, in the minds of most people legitimize the numbers that are spun by our politicians more than John's work. So we're really glad to have John Williams with us again to set the record straight. Welcome, John, again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, thank you for having me, Jay. Just uh, really good to have you. And, John, it just I just felt I had to get you back on the show because I was looking at some of your work recently and it just uh, it, it, to me your work on inflation especially is so profound that, and I think that the inflation numbers that are being spun by our government are misleading Americans into believing uh, into a state of tranquility into a state of, of passivity and um, uh, you know not con- a non-concern where people should be very concerned about the situation and so I want to ask you uh, well 
um, let's let's get into inflation first. How do you, you know, the the Austrians define inflation simply, the Austrian economists simply as money being created, uh, being printed, or being the money supply essentially. Um, how how does the government define inflation? And then I would I ask you that first, and then how do you define inflation? Well, uh, I look at um, inflation from a practical standpoint, the way most people would understand it mm-hmm. in terms of the uh, 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 some kind of a measure of the uh, cost of consumer goods and services. Uh, the way the government used to define it is the way I, I define it, and that is that it's, uh, I look at a, what's considered a, a fixed basket of goods. Um, if you're looking at inflation, the way it was uh, initially used, uh, and, and, and there have been inflation indices that have gone back centuries, they've always been uh, of the same nature, and that is that um, there's, they, they go after a fixed basket of, of goods. What they want to do is um, um, effectively measure the uh, increase in the cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that makes sense because what, what most people would use an inflation measure for uh, would be maybe to look to adjust their income sure. um, or to set minimum uh, investment targets. What do I have to do to beat inflation? So the way the uh, government used to look at it, um, the way I uh, still look at it and, uh, and and talk about it, of course, you have different inflation measures uh, for different uh, needs, but the, the basic one for the consumer uh, was to measure that uh, inflation for maintaining a constant standard of living. Mm-hmm. So what, the, what they do is they'd sample, um, using very simplistic terms, uh, Let's say what the the price of a loaf of bread, a pound of steak, a gallon of gas. Mm-hmm. Let's say that was your market basket. Then they mm-hmm. price it out the next year. Um, whatever it had, had had changed by in that period of time, that's how much your income had to go up in order to uh, purchase the same basket of goods that you had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, um, John, let me just ask you, isn't that the way the CPI was calculated by the government at one point in time? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about now is is, is coincident. It, it's it's what, the way I look at it, and it's the way the government looked at it uh, into uh, the 1980s. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm going to jump to the 1990s first because uh, it becomes pretty clear what's happening at that time. Um, uh, Alan Greenspan starts talking about how the uh, how the CPI overstates inflation and mm-hmm. how we could get a more accurate number mm-hmm. that would give us a lower inflation rate. Uh, that would reduce cost of living adjustments uh, for Social Security recipients, and that would have the effect of reducing the budget deficit. So there are all sorts of positive things that we're seeing financially from having a so-called uh, better or corrected uh, in, in inflation measure. But if you ask Greenspan, why why was the CPI wrong? How was it off? Uh, the answer would be, well, you know, state gets uh, too expensive. People buy more hamburger. They buy more hamburger. Um, then it's uh, it's not costing them as much. Their cost of living isn't as high. Mm-hmm. Well, that while that may be true under um, one definition of the cost of living, it's it's completely contrary to the concept of the cost of living living needed to, needed to maintain a constant standard of living. Wow. And that's what they uh, that's what they moved to uh, abrogate. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, they redefined the CPI. Um, they didn't ch- they they left the CPI intact, and so it had all its legal definitions in terms of how it was used and. Um, uh, deflating things such as Social Security or adjusting uh, tax brackets. But they they changed the methodologies on the CPI uh, to make it more of a substitution-based index. Uh, they changed the, the, the weightings, uh, sped up the period in which uh, time in which 
actually kept changing the weightings of the goods in the index. They introduced what they called geometric uh, weighting, where in, in different categories, the geometric weighting, anything that uh, goes up in price automatically gets a lower weighting in, in the index. It has mm. nothing to do with the way people are buying things. Mm. But they introduced all sorts of gimmicks to try and bring down um, the, uh, the, the, the CPI. Now, back in the 80s, it also done something which was, uh, I find, equally egregious, and that was uh, they introduced what they called hedonic uh, quality adjustments. Quality adjustments are legitimate in the CPI, and um, when you can directly measure them, uh, such as uh, when the people go out and survey and they find an eight, uh, one month it's an 8-ounce candy bar, the next month they have the same time, same, same size package, but the content is a 6-ounce mm-hmm. candy bar. Um, they uh, they adjust for that. There's a you know, mathematically adjust for what the effect of inflation is. Mm-hmm. But when you get into something um, such as, let's say, a washing machine, uh, there's no way of easily adjusting uh, what the quality differential is because now instead of having a hand turner, you have a... Uh, a digital display on, on the washer. And by putting in these, this what they came up with their series of econometric models that would estimate what all these changes were worth in terms of the CPI, and it would reduce the inflation for them because of these um, quality improvements. My contention is the way people look at the CPI, the way I look at the CPI, and the way the government used to look at the CPI was that they look at it as out of pocket. How much is it going to cost me right. uh, to, to, to buy a washing machine? I just went through the process with a good friend of mine. She bought a, um, she had to replace a washing machine that uh, uh, she'd uh, she'd bought 40 years ago. Uh, the best she could do, she bought top of the line back then. She bought top of the line today. Uh, the one she bought top of the line today is not likely to last 10 years, mm-hmm. but that's not incorporated in the. Uh, and these quality adjustments that the government does. Mm-hmm. But it was, how much am I out of pocket to get a, a washing machine? Or, um, and they, they also, uh, they're big things that they do with computers, and there may be some legitimate issues there, but uh, um, I, I look at it, at it as I need to replace my computer. How much is that costing me out of pocket? Cost me the same thing, maybe uh, 10 years apart. So I'd say, okay, there's no one, there hasn't been any net inflation as far as I'm concerned. Now, yes, the computer's got tremendous uh, capabilities in terms of memory that it didn't have back then, but the one back then I can still use. Um, I don't need all, all that tremendous memory. I don't mm-hmm. want television mm-hmm. on it, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a new product, and that perhaps should be introduced as a new product. Um, but if you go by the government's uh, calculations, if I wanted to replace a computer that I had 10 years ago, which is all I was looking to do, I should have been able to buy it for 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. That was because of all the quality improvements they made and, and uh, reduced in the pricing of, of computers. Right. The, the effect here is that since the 1980s, um, the, the government, when it makes a change, estimates the effect. How much will this knock off of um, annual inflation? And if you add up all the changes they've made um, since the 19, uh, since 1980, um, it's order of magnitude uh, 7 percentage points. No. Since 1990, it's a little over three percentage points. Uh, what I do, I, I just I, t- I added back in the estimates of the changes. I don't recalculate the CPI. I don't have the, uh, uh, the capability of doing that. It, mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary process. But I, I, I publish an estimate based on the government's estimates of what their changes knocked off the inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the effect has been uh, significant, not only for individuals, I mean, for people on Social Security, for example. Um, had these changes not been made, Social Security checks would be double what they are today. Oh. And now you've got all these budget negotiations where they're, what are, what's the only thing they can agree on uh, in, in terms of um, how they're going to cut the budget now? It's uh, it, it, The only thing they've come up with is putting in a new CPI measure right. that will further reduce uh, <laughs> 
the inflation rate. Right. What they're going to replace the current one with is a fully substitution-based index. Uh-huh. Even with all the changes they made back in the 90s, the CPI now is a quasi-substitution-based quasi, uh, uh, index. It's a Rube Goldberg thing. But this no. is that's that's they're, they've done it before. They're trying to do it again. And um, well, well, John, h- how far can they go with this substitution stuff? Are they going to ask us to eat dog food instead of hamburger the next time? Well, that's that's where it goes. No. I mean, there's no that and that, but, but that that's not maintaining the constant a constant, a constant basket. Yeah, exactly right. Well, John, I'd just like to tell our listeners, uh, because we all have a time limitation here, that what you're listening, you're listening to John explain how he calculates uh, inflation and why I believe his numbers really match reality much more than the government numbers. And we're going to, I'm going to bring out some more reasons why I believe that's true and let John address those. But what I really want to emphasize to our listeners is you need to see the charts in John's newsletter, Shadow Stats. John, tell our listeners where they can uh, learn more about your work and sign up for your newsletter. Well, uh, my uh, website is shadowstats.com, and uh, there's a, a fair amount of um, information available there uh, to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, right-hand column, there's a, uh, my hyperinflation report. Right. Hasn't, that hasn't changed much over the years. Um, it, I'm going to be updating it soon, and it's the, the basic concepts there, and, and all the issues that, that we're discussing here are outlined there. Um, uh, on that site, uh, there, you, you look at alternative measures of the government's numbers, and of course, we're, we always welcome uh, new subscribers, and there's a box there if you're interested in subscribing. Right. You just click and follow the directions. Well, I would suggest people do that because, John, when I started looking at these charts, I looked at your inflation numbers, and then I looked at what that means in terms of the real GDP, if we used your numbers as opposed to the, to the uh, numbers that the government, the spun numbers that the government gives us. Uh, and it looks to me, if we, you know, for example, you, you adjust uh, gross domestic product, John, and when I look at your GDP numbers adjusted for your uh, inflation numbers it looks like we've hardly bounced off the bottom i mean almost no growth at all we're according to this we're still in uh in a recession or in a, a contraction is that what you're saying yes um economy plunged into ni- uh, 2009 and then basically stagnated at a low level it's actually beginning to turn down again a lot of evidence of that that's the more common experience and i'll tell you jake the average guy's got a pretty good sense of what's going on uh much better sense of reality i'll, I'll go with main street usa over uh, the government statistics anytime well and here's the point i want to make john and we could bring up there's there's a whole lot of different charts in your in your letter uh, that that really hit this home to me. But if we look at median household income, or if we look at real average earnings, real average earnings are still on a decline. They're not they're not growing at all. Uh, real average or median household income adjusted for inflation numbers. Your your inflation numbers show a slight well, lift from the bottom, but that's still... that, that's actually using the government's inflation numbers. Oh, okay, but that's even with the uh, even with the household inflation. You're, you're seeing levels there that haven't been seen since 1967, and that is based on uh, government inflation numbers. It's a lot worse when you put my numbers in. Okay, so the point is here, and, and one that really hit home was the retail sales. If you look at the yeah. government's retail sales numbers, it looks like a V-shaped recovery almost to, to previous highs or at previous highs, and yet if you adjust those retail sales for your inflation numbers, uh, you know we're still we're still at the bottom. We haven't lifted it off at all. So here's the point, John. Um, what I what really hit home to me, and I, I said this is the canary in the coal mine, is the uh, the numbers that come out from the, the consumer confidence numbers that come out from the Michigan Index, uh, and there's another one that you show as well. Talk about that a little bit. To me, 
what that's saying is, you know, this is the, the consumer sentiment or the attitude of the American people, the main street of people that you're talking about. And when I look at those charts, they look like your GDP charts, like the charts that you're having adjusted for inflation, right. which to me makes sense because I know as an average sort of middle class person, we know that our cost is going up a heck of a lot more than 1.7% a year, which is what the government's telling us. So uh, there's, there's another number that I didn't see in your chart, but I saw somewhere else. Food stamps are at record highs right now. Uh, and we're seeing the number of people in the civilian labor force just keeps declining, declining, declining. So government is adding some people, but those are how productive are those jobs and how productive is that work? So would you would you say that perhaps the consumer sentiment index is confirming the legitimacy of your numbers? That's what it tells me. Yes, it is. And uh, basically what you find is that where you have indices uh, that are not at all involved with inflation, you get that pattern. Mm-hmm. The ones where you see uh, any kind of recovery are the ones more often that have an inflation uh, base in them. And if you adjust the inflation base, you'll, you'll, you'll find that you end up with that consumer confidence pattern. Well, John, I want to. we talked about inflation, and to me that is the number one uh, statistic that is that is really allowing the propaganda machine of the United States to be sent out over the airwaves of the mainstream airwaves and telling people, look, don't worry, things are pretty good, they're getting better. People don't feel it, and that shows up in the sentiment, uh, but, uh, you know, in the consumer sentiment indexes. But the other main difference that you, uh, that, you know, in your numbers are unemployment numbers. Right. Talk to us a little bit about unemployment now and, and perhaps compare them with the 1930s. I'll, I'll do that. I just one quick point, tying together the other things that you've mentioned there. You're right on the mark. Uh, the big problem here is that the consumer does not have positive growth in his income after adjustment for inflation. He can't expand his uh, debt in order to make up uh, uh, the shortfall in his uh, cost of living. Yes. Unlike before the panic in 2008. As a result, there's no way that you can have sustainable growth in consumption, which is uh, more than two-thirds of the economy. Uh-huh. And, 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 and without sustainable growth there, the GDP doesn't grow. You, you can't could not have had a, a recession, excuse me, a recovery under those circumstances. And there's non pending. And, and one place that you also see this indeed is with the uh, uh, unemployment. Uh, if you uh, went around the country and asked every individual whether or not he or she uh, was unemployed, you would get uh, you'd get a much higher unemployment rate uh, than the government puts out. The government's uh, the government publishes six levels. It's uh, it's U three level. The third level is a headline number that was at seven point seven percent last month. Uh, in order to be counted in that category, you have to look for work, physically look for work in the last four weeks. If you haven't, you're considered a discouraged worker, unless assuming that you've looked in the last year, and if you've been discouraged for more than a year, they don't count you at all. Mm-hmm. They used to count anyone who was discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were out of work and you've been, you know, you, you still, if you still want a job, uh, you're willing, ready, and able to go to work, as far as I'm concerned, you're unemployed. As far as the person there is concerned, he or she is unemployed. Um, so that if um, you look at the government's broadest measure, the, well, the U6 level, which includes uh, um, what I call the short-term discouraged workers and, and people who've been forced to work uh, part-time because they can't get a full-time job, there instead of being uh, 7.7%, it's 14.3%. But after they've been discouraged for a year, they just drop out of the government's numbers altogether. The, even at the U6 level, they're no longer in the official labor force. Mm-hmm. And and if you take the uh, take those that have been uh, pushed into the netherworld, uh, they've been discouraged for more than a year. Um, I estimate that, and, and there the unemployment rate uh, right now is at uh, 23%, which is... Uh, 
the high of the current cycle. Now, some people say, oh, yeah, that's, oh, my goodness, we're getting up close to the Great Depression. And indeed, in the Great Depression, although they were not, it was not formally uh, estimated at the time, they didn't start uh, estimating unemployment until the 1940s. They didn't survey it until the 1940s. But they can't put together some pretty hard estimates along the lines of what you'd get if you went around and asked everyone again, are you, are you unemployed or not? And uh, the 25% was the peak number in uh, 1933. At that time, however, uh, 27% of the people involved were uh, living and working on farms. Yeah. Uh, today, that's less than 2%. And um, if you look at the non-farm unemployment rate at the, in the Great Depression estimate, there's about 35%. I think that would be the number comparable to my 23%. percent mm. we're, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we're at the worst level that you've seen since the Great Depression, but we're not quite to the Great Depression levels yet. All right, you say yet, and unfortunately, you use that word yet. I know that you're really concerned about hyperinflation, John, and you alluded to your report that you'll be updating pretty soon. And again, I'd suggest to our listeners that they go to Shadow Stats and and check this out because this is really important stuff. You suggested last year that uh, you're expecting hyperinflation to erupt by uh, late 2014. Uh, That's still the case. uh, That's still the case. And the second question is, let for the sake of our listeners, I know your definition, but for the sake of our listeners, define hyperinflation. Well, there there are no formal definitions that I'm aware of, but mine very simply is that when the the largest uh, denomination note in circulation before the inflation in the United States, that would be the $100 bill, when that becomes worth more as uh, toilet paper and as currency, you've got hyperinflation. Yeah. I'm looking at the dollar becoming absolutely worthless, where you don't want to be physically holding uh, a currency or, or dollar-denominated a paper like uh, a, a treasury bond. Okay, what? what? Need, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. What, what you need in, in going forward here, and I can't give you a precise timing on it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a circumstance where you want to look to preserve the uh, purchasing power of your wealth and assets, and your primary hedge there is uh, physical gold over getting outside the U.S. dollar. This will be largely a dollar problem. Mm-hmm. The economy and the rest of the world will be affected. Eventually, you'll have to have a reorganization of the global currency system. My expectation will be, however, that is structured. It will involve gold to a certain extent mm-hmm. uh, somehow to uh, try and uh, give the public some renewed confidence in the currency system. Right, exactly. And we've had, uh, well, I haven't had John, uh, Jim Sinclair on the show, um, but Jim Sinclair is one that believes that we are going to go back onto some sort of a global gold-backed monetary system simply to restore the balance sheets of banks again. And uh, other people we've had on the show, Lewis Lehrman, for example, and uh, John Butler uh, from England, uh, both of these gentlemen are absolutely convinced it's just a matter of time before we go back on some sort of a gold-backed uh, standard, at least for international trade. What do you think, uh, I'm not going to even ask you where the price of gold could go and silver, because I think that's irrelevant because it's, I mean, it's infinite almost, because what's the do- if the dollar is completely worthless, how can you measure anything in the dollar? Right, but I have to ask okay. you, John. Um, how do we get to a, a dollar that collapses? How do we get to hyperinflation if everybody is broke and there's no demand? There's no ability to go out and buy stuff and bid the prices of things up. How do we get there? The dollar collapses. What causes the dollar to collapse? 
what's a collapse of confidence in the dollar, and what we're looking at would also be a collapse of confidence in the dollar on a global basis. Um, we, we saw that uh, happen to a large extent back in the days of the uh, budget negotiations that were, were so horrendous in uh, uh, 2011. Uh, we, we saw in response to that um, uh, effectively a panic decline in the dollar's uh, sell-off uh, versus or, uh, buying of gold. Um, there's a lot of uh, unusual intervention. The Swiss tied the uh, franc to the euro. The markets here went against uh, targeted the euro. Now, all of a sudden, we're coming up on this, uh, what's going to be, a, I believe, a terrible budget fiasco in the United States, which will again renew the very heavy selling pressure on the dollar. Um, we're, we're seeing the uh, euro uh, coming back into focus as uh, effectively a foil for the, for the dollar. I mean, there's a lot of problems in the euro area. It's still a stronger currency than the U.S. dollar. We're, we're the elephant in the bathtub of sovereign solvency. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens here going forward uh will, to a large extent in, in the near term, uh, relate to the U.S. dollar. I, l- I look for dollar panic, and with that, you'll, you'll see a spike in oil prices. That's what one reaction that we get, which uh, um, in terms of the cost of uh, uh, consumer goods and services is a big item. I mean, whatever variation we've had in inflation over the last couple of years has been tied to that. And uh, where the Fed in QE2 uh, knocked the dollar down, they also knocked the price of oil up. Some of the recent rise in oil was due to uh, QE3. Um, the Fed is already now buying as monetizing treasuries. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary, extraordinary circumstance. Yeah. The, well, the big problem. The big problem is that the government is is uh, bankrupt right now. It's running mm-hmm. technically. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's running uh, actual deficits of uh, something shy of seven trillion dollars a year. Uh, including the year-to-year deterioration in the uh, underfunded liabilities right. for the future value of money, um, net present value. Right. Uh, the deficit of uh, the 2012 was 6.6 trillion. Right. That, that's beyond containment. Uh, right. uh, there's, there's, uh, it's a system that has to be brought under control. Uh, you, you, could, you couldn't balance that in, in, a, in a given year uh, just by, by, by raising taxes. You couldn't raise taxes enough. You enough. Could, you could yeah. take uh, everyone's uh, wages and salaries, 100%. You'd still be in deficit. Well, yeah, uh, and you, I might... You, you, you yeah. can't cut budget. They can't cut uh, spending enough. Um, you can cut everything, uh, but the Social Security, uh, Medicare, and such, and you'd still be in deficit. Right. Um, they're not going to address it. They don't have the political will to address it. And uh, well, the pain. Well, this is... would have led to hyperinflation, and by the end of the decade, mm-hmm. because the government would would still have to meet its obligations and generate print that money that would uh, be, be, become worthless. The financial crisis of 2008 accelerated the process. Right. What they've well, done since uh, has uh, has put us on 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 the brink of uh, uh, collapse again. They they bought a little bit of time, um, but it's uh, it's also uh, brought to rule reputation. And as you see, massive selling against the dollar, which is what I'd be looking for this year. That'll start the um, that'll start driving inflation quite a bit higher and set the stage for the hyperinflation, which will begin to unfold. Well, it's certainly not a happy uh, topic at all, but it is what it is, John. And again, I might want to point out that that $7 trillion deficit you talked about is based on real honest accounting, gap accounting. And you also provide some good information in your newsletter at Shadow Stats about uh, what the government is doing really as opposed – well, that's basically what your what your newsletter is all about. What are the real numbers, uh, not the ones that – the spun numbers that the government gives us? And that's just another example of this, uh, you know, the gap accounting that 
it really accounts for what the government is on the hook for, what it's promised to its citizens going forward. And it is not a pretty picture, but as you point out, John, and what we talk about on this show very frequently is that probably you have to step outside the system. You have to buy gold and silver, which is really nature's money. It's it's what um, what the markets have chosen as money for, for many, many centuries. And so, um, John, I want to thank you again. Unfortunately, we're out of time. There's so much more that we could ask you about, but I just want to tell people, go to Shadow Stats, look it up, uh, go at uh, Google John Williams on, on Shadow, uh, Shadow Government Statistics, is the name of his newsletter, and uh, check it out. There's a lot of free stuff there, but it's also something I think you would do very well to. Very reasonable subscription price, by the way. Uh, sign up for this newsletter. It's very, very worth it. Thank you, John, very much for being with us once again. Uh, folks, Thanks don't, for having me. Really great to have you again, John. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with the new CEO of Golden Arrow, namely Carlos Fernandez Masi. Don't go away. You're not going to want to miss what he has to say about this company's future. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers, with valuations exceeding $280 million. With a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well-positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm extremely pleased to have with me today Carlos Fernandez Masi. He's the new president and CEO of Golden Arrow Resources Corp. 
Uh, he not only brings with him his skills as a mining engineer, but also his skills as a successful CEO. His career spans over 30 years in international business and investment banking, highlighted by his leadership as CEO of the Bolivian subsidiary of Apex Silver Mines, where he led the development of the San Cristobal project in Bolivia. With over $1 billion of investment, the 40,000-ton-per-day project represented the largest mining investment in the country, with substantial contributions to regional infrastructure, mining capacity, and job creation. Under his leadership, the San Cristobal project gained recognition as a model for impact investing, job creation, and sustainable solutions to human development. So he, is a very, he has a very successful track record as a mining executive, but that isn't all. Carlos uh, also uh, was the CEO of the William J. Clinton Foundation. That's the Clinton Justra Sustainable Growth Initiative. Uh, that's an initiative committed to narrowing the wealth gap in the developing world. Welcome, Carlos, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much, uh, Jay. Thank you for the introduction. Well, it's really good to have you with me, and it was a real pleasure meeting you up in uh, up in Toronto recently at the PDAC. Uh, before we get started with uh, with our discussion about uh, the company, let me just point out to my listeners that Golden Arrow Resources trades uh, in Toronto on the, on the Venture Exchange under the symbol GRC, and you can buy it in the United States as I have under the symbol GARWF. Recently trading at about 24 cents a share, and there's 41.8 million shares only outstanding right now. So Golden Arrow has a large number of precious metals and base metal projects in Argentina, and it has a couple of properties now that I think may well make this uh, a household name company in the not-too-distant future. They are the Chinchillas Silver Prospect and the Magote Copper Gold Silver Prospect uh, along the Chilean um, and uh, Argentinian border. Well, Carlos, um, you know, with your background, uh, you know, working with the uh, with Bill Clinton, uh, and as an international investor, a person with an international perspective, I have to ask you now: uh, How do you view Argentina as a place to do business for people that maybe you know, for outsiders, people that are not citizens of Argentina, in light of uh, the recent? Uh, not too long ago, anyway, nationalization of, a, of some assets that were owned by a Spanish oil company. How, how should we, how can people outside of Spain feel comfortable uh, with, given that past? Uh, well, Jay, I think it's a very good question. Uh, I think that uh, country risk is not an umbrella concept anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you have to go and dig a bit deeper in every country. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Argentina, you have the national government, the provincial, the provincial government, as well as the local government. And uh, just like, you know, the emerging market uh, risk concept of 10 and 15 years ago in which they, they bundled all of the emerging uh, economies into one single risk uh, uh, concept, mm-hmm. uh, I think that has evolved and you have to look particularly at what happens in every country. Mm-hmm. On the, on the nationalization, nationalization of uh, YPF uh, from, from the Spanish oil company, I believe that there's certainly a local perspective uh, that is rather different uh, uh, on, on, on that, uh, on that, uh, on that issue. Mm-hmm. And I think it had to do a little bit more on, on the commitments of, that the company had in the country and the fact that, uh, there, there were some issues that were actually conflicting with what the, what Argentina wanted to do mm-hmm. as a policy for the oil and gas uh, sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly don't think that this applies as a blanket policy, uh, certainly not for mining. Mm-hmm. Um, on the positive side, I can tell you that Argentina represents great geological potential for mining, 
And uh, when you ask, uh, when were you are uh, talking about pol political risk, you have very friendly provinces like San Juan, where Barrick operates very successfully, or Catamarca. And uh, and as a result of that, you have over 145 companies that are are have some kind of interest or activity in exploration or in production in in Argentina. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you know, I compare it, for instance, with my country, Bolivia, which is supposed to be a it is a mining country. And we don't nearly have uh, that number of uh, companies uh, uh, active in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. We have, I think, we have a handful of companies, uh, international companies in Bolivia. So mm -hmm. I think that companies are reading, you know, the the uh, the uh, the country risk uh, uh, smartly. And uh, and and as I say, on the positive side, Argentina offers great infrastructure. They have great roads, ports, communications, and all that. And particularly as a company, I think our company has uh, more than 20 years of uh, being pioneers in, in the mining industry in Argentina, uh, over 20 years of being good corporate citizens. And, uh, and I think with the, in that time frame, the company has witnessed different political changes, different crises, and, uh, and today we are uniquely positioned with a very good uh, property package and, 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 uh, and a very good uh, corporate reputation. Yeah, indeed, and uh, it was... Uh uh, the uh, perception of Joe Grasso uh, 20 years ago or so when he realized that uh, due to various political issues, I suppose internal policies of Argentina, that a lot of exploration hadn't taken uh, place uh, on the eastern side of the, Andre, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the mountains there. And on the other side, the Chileans had done remarkably well with their prospects. So clearly, um, uh, as Joe likes to say, uh, God didn't keep the minerals on one side of the of the boundary there there's certainly a lot of prospects there for for you to shoot at well you have a large number of properties in Argentina Carlos how, how many in the portfolio of uh, Golden Arrow at this time we have over 30 30 properties so it's a lot of a lot of ground to shoot at of course and uh, uh, but your flagship property the one I referred to when I was introducing you and in the company the Chinchilla Silver property it, it looks very exciting to me and I want to talk to you about that uh, a little bit uh, that's really what I'd like to focus on probably more than anything else but how costly is it for you to hold those 30 properties uh, at this time is it is it a large portion of your budget or do, how, no, how does it cost? No, actually it's not, uh, it's not very high. Uh, we are, um, you know, uh, on the properties we don't have uh, payments uh, to make and it's only the taxes and property taxes but uh, they're not, uh, they're not significant. Yeah. Well, um, so there, there are several reasons why I think that your stock, in my view, and, and the reason I went out and bought some recently, and the reason I put it into my newsletter, the reason why I think it is sort of a no-brainer right now if you're a speculative investor, especially at this point in time when all the shares have been hammered so so hard in the junior resource sector, is that you you have a fair amount of cash in your books, which is very, very important in this market, but your recent... Uh, Results from the Chinchilla Silver property suggest to me that at least that the possibility that you could be onto a significant discovery there. What what can you tell us about the Chinchillas property at this time? Well, the Chinchillas project uh, is uh, is located in the prolific Bolivian silver zinc uh, belt, and uh, we believe that it has the potential to host uh, a very large uh, silver zinc uh, lead deposit. Um, we are very excited at the results of the second drilling program we just finished that uh, was expressed in our latest news release, which was released yesterday. Um, and I think, in, in, in summary, the, the, the Chinchillas represent a unique opportunity to convert resources into reserves in a relatively short uh, period of time. Mm -hmm. um, we, once we, you know, after f finishing this drilling program and after we finished the analysis, 
we intend on publishing a 43-101 report uh, by the end of April or, or mid-May, mm. and, and then we will, we will define our course of action. Oh. But as uh, things look uh, today, we are very, very excited because uh, uh, in addition to the, to the indications that we are getting from the drilling uh, results, uh, as we look strategically as to what the next steps could be, uh, Cinchillas uh, provides uh, a flexibility that is not very common. There's not only one course of action going forward, but uh, actually, uh, in addition to you know short time to reserves, and based on the mineability and the metallurgy and the infrastructure and the cost references that we have uh, from operators in the region, we have several options going forward, and certainly interested parties in in in, in the reserves themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's what I can say uh, on on Chichilias, and and we're very excited. Yeah, it's uh, really I, looking at the drill results and the re- uh, report that was put out by the company. I found very exciting and encouraging, suggesting that there was a great deal of upside, and so we'll be really looking for um, uh, for that forty three one hundred one. It's coming out in the fairly fairly near future, then, isn't it? So. Uh, well, well, that's the Chinchilias, which I think is, you know, is a very exciting story for a company with a market cap of only around $10 million right now. But you have a second property that I think is also very much worth people paying attention to, and that's the Magoti Copper Gold Silver Project. And you've got a major company, I think it's Valet, is, uh, is operating there. Would you care to mention that, talk about that? Yes, uh, Valley through their subsidiary in Argentina, Valley Exploración Argentina, uh, in the JV contract has uh, the option to earn a 70% interest in the Mogoto project uh, by investing $6.8 million in exploration and a $2.8 million cash payment to Golden and Arrow over, uh, over uh, the next four years. Mm-hmm. And um, we met at PDAC with, with our Valley uh, partners, and, uh, and they are in the second season of their ongoing drilling program. Uh, we have a very good working relationship. They have completed the mapping, geophysics, and uh, and this could be a very, very interesting porphyry deposit. In fact, we believe it has the, per- the footprint of one. It's just a matter of determining the economics at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what is the arrangement there? Do you get what is the percentage of ownership that they can earn? Uh, Valley can earn. Do you know? They can, earn, as I said, seventy percent, seven zero percent. By investing 6.8 million in, uh, in in the next four years, plus 2.8 million in cash payments, and then further they could go up to uh, uh, 85% with with uh, uh, by delivering a, a feasibility study in the, in in three years. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, let's let's hope they do that because if they do, that would leave you with 15% of a very large project, and a, again, a company with a market cap of around 10 million dollars could be could be we underscore the word could be. Very, uh, very, very important to uh, investors in this company. Well, you, as you mentioned, you have some 30 properties altogether. There's a, a few others that I think are at the drill-ready uh, state. I, I don't know if you'd care to comment on those. Yeah, we have several pro- pro- properties in, in the portfolio. We have uh, some that are in, uh, you know, prospects. We have several of those. We have uh, a few in early exploration, but we have uh, three or four that are on, on uh, drill-ready. Uh, the Caballos uh, uh, Copper Gold Project, uh, Potrillo, Potrillos Gold Silver, which is close to uh, Barracks Valadero, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and also the Pescado Gold Project. Now, in all of these, we have signed uh, CAs for joint ventures. Uh, mm-hmm. They're all in good jurisdictions. We have advanced sampling, mapping, geophysics, and uh, tell you what, why don't we leave some powder for the next call? I oh yeah, know a lot more. <laughs> well, I you might know a lot have more about these properties for the next call. <laughs> you might have you might have some more um, you might have some more information, uh, some drilling yes, and exploration. Yes, we, we we're we're focused right now on 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 chinchillas. Oh, uh, and, and, and I'm in a very steep uh, learning curve uh, as I recently joined the company. So yeah, well, but all have, these all these properties uh, represent good potential. I have no doubt that that learning curve will be uh, she'll be able to scale over that very quickly. One question is extremely important these days for junior mining sector is, and that is, how much money do you have in the till now? We have about twelve and a half million dollars in the bank, mm-hmm. and uh, we have access to you know short term. Uh, in short term, we can we have access to another two and a half or three million dollars. Mm-hmm. Our expenditures, without taking into account the drilling programs, are, are, are not very high. So uh, you know we have staying power for 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 a good deal of time, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, you know, we are going to define, as I said, after the 43101, we're going to define the next steps regarding chinchillas, and that will, uh, will, uh, we are certain that we will be able to fund, uh, you know, the next phases of, uh, of chinchillas, at least for the next two years. You know, Carlos, uh, I, I probably, I shouldn't be telling you that you know better than I do how important it is as a, you know, as a person who's done business in, in Bolivia, who's, been so successful there, how important it is for the mining companies to get along well and to be welcomed in those countries, especially if they're outside mining co- uh, companies. And, you know, Golden Arrow is a Canadian-based company. Uh, how well-received are they in Argentina? Well, I would like to highlight that our founder, Joseph Grosso, was the pioneer of mining in Argentina, mm-hmm. and he has a stellar reputation in the country. And mm-hmm. that, uh, that for the company is worth you know, it's it, it's hard to describe. Mm-hmm. His track record of achievement speaks for itself with uh, Navidad and Walcamayo, that are world-class deposits, and uh, he's very well regarded by the authorities at all levels. Mm-hmm. So as a corporation, really, with his legacy, uh, we have been very, very good corporate citizens for over 10 years. We have contributed to the mining industry significantly, and uh, so I think we are well-positioned in-country uh, mm-hmm. to continue with our presence there. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding social issues uh, that uh, you mentioned, I think not uh, during our conversation last time, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I hope to bring my previous experience from San Cristobal in Bolivia, where we had uh, very innovative community engagement, uh, very respectful dialogue, and we aligned the objectives of all the communities and different stakeholders mm-hmm. with the objectives of the, of the mine operation. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we bring in this, uh, this rainbow approach to, to Chinchillas and to all of our projects, I think, uh, you know, uh, Argentina is a, is a good place for us to be. Well, it certainly would seem to have, as, as you pointed out, the, the uh, geological prospects under underexplored compared to, uh, say, Chile. Um, you know, Joe Grasso and, and uh, Golden Arrow has been down there for a long time, and I really think that uh, your presence is going to make a big difference too, Carlos. I'm really excited about you joining this company, given your track record and um, and uh, as well regarded as you are in the mining industry, I think that's very, very important. Is there anything else you'd like to say today before we uh, conclude our conversation? Well, um, I, I would just like to, to maybe repeat myself, but say, say that I'm very excited uh, at this opportunity. I think I'm joining a, a company that has a very good track record, a very good footprint in Argentina, a, a, a project that is, is advancing very, very well, an experienced team, a results-oriented team, and a, and a bank, uh, you know, uh, some cash in the bank, which which is something that uh, 
that uh, give us the flexibility to to uh, plan, uh, uh, you know, for maximizing value out of, out of all of our all of our properties. And I think the leadership team with the new additions, not only myself, but the the the, the, the people on the on the technical side as well as the new CFO, we have complementary skills with with Joe's leadership and. And I think that uh, you know we. I hope we have more of these calls uh, to talk about uh, upcoming successes for for Golden Arrow. Me too. I'm looking forward to it, Carlos. I, I want to thank you very much for taking your valuable time to talk to us today, and I uh, look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Well, that's all the time we have for now. But don't go away because I'll be back in just a minute after the commercial break to talk about next week's guests. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico. Backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet, an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I am really uh, really enjoyed my conversation with Carlos, uh, but I just uh, realized, uh, it was just actually brought to my attention a few minutes ago that uh, I misspoke with respect to the Toronto Exchange symbol for the company. It is GRG, Girl, Ray, Girl, and not GRC, Girl, Ray, Charlie. So GRG is the symbol for Golden Arrow. My apologies uh, to Golden Arrow for that uh, mistake. But GRG, and uh, actually I have 
uh, purchased the stock in the United States under the symbol GARWF. You can buy it down here in the in the states, and the the stock was down a bit today, which I think makes it an even better buy. I talked a, a bit more. Uh, we'll just mention uh, a couple more things about. Uh, this stock, I think the Chinchillas project is looking very, very promising, especially in light of the recent, um, uh, the, the recent press release that came out about uh, recent drill results, which suggests the potential for, uh, for hitting a, the feeder zones, uh, and also the fact that it seems to be open in almost every direction. We will be, uh, getting as, um, uh, getting some numbers, some uh, 43101 resource numbers, as Carla suggested, in the not too distant future. So when that happens, of course, we'll be bringing that to your attention. But, you know, it's at this point in time, the real pros in this industry, the Rick Rules of this world are in there buying these kind of, these kind of stocks. If you believe, as I do, that we have seen, probably have seen the bottom out here in the gold and silver markets uh, for reasons that I talked about in the first two segments of today's show, then uh, I think you're going to look back at periods of time like this as one of those woulda, coulda, shoulda time periods where uh, a lot of these stocks are selling very, very at very, very low prices. And it's not to mean that you indiscriminately buy these things. But uh, if you take a look at a company like uh, Golden Arrow, it has had um, a lot of success in the past. This management has had uh, a lot of success in the past. And then you look at what they're developing at Chinchillas and you realize they're a well-funded company. Uh, and then with, I think with Carlos, uh, Masi coming on as the CEO also makes this company even stronger. Um, that I think it's, you know, it's, you, you need to take a look at some of these things because the companies that are real, that have the ability to stay through this difficult time and build a real resource, uh, they're, you know, these, these are companies that are trading at ridiculously low prices. If they have something real and it turns out to be economic, these, uh, can be home runs in a very short period of time. Of course, one of the, uh, risks in this industry is your, is the time value of money. You can also buy these stocks and you have to sit with them for a long time and sometimes, uh, as we've seen recently with a lot of the lower Lower priced, uh, junior mining companies, there's no bids. So that's the, that's one of the biggest risks. The risk of dilution and the risks of, uh, of, of just no liquidity in these stocks is always something you need to be aware of. And so for that reason, these are not the kind of shares that just anybody, everybody should be buying. If you need, uh, if liquidity is a concern of yours and if you're going to buy the gold shares and you want to stick with the ones, the bigger companies that have lots of liquidity are solid. And I really do like, those that are producing positive cash flows, as I mentioned, just added Allied Nevada to my list last week. I mentioned Dynacor, a sponsor to this show. Companies that have cash flow, cash flow positive companies that can really grow very nicely. Well, so uh, we're looking forward to talking to Carlos again sometime in the near future, as well as some of our uh, other companies. Dynacor is going to be on with me uh, pretty soon to talk about their fiscal year-end numbers and uh, and their plans going forward. They should also have some uh, some drill results. I think pretty soon from their Tumi Pampa project in Peru. Well, I really did also enjoy today's discussion with Dr. Peter Treadway for his insights. I think the, the cause of our problems, and Dr. Treadway wasn't at all bashful about saying he believes democracy is the problem. In fact, he pointed out, rightfully so, that democracy doesn't appear in the U.S. Constitution, not even once. In fact, we weren't even supposed to be a democracy. It was President Wilson who uh, coined the slogan, making the world safe for democracy. Well, democracy uh, turns out to be more like mobocracy because 
people that have the vote start to voting start to vote to take property away from people who uh, who have the property. So, as Ian McAvity has pointed out, in the United States now we have um, about as many people voting for a living as working for a living. So this is a very dangerous time. I think a period of time in which uh, wealth destruction we're seeing destruction of the capital markets, as David Stockman said on this show, from the inside out. Uh, Mr. Bernanke is absolutely destroying the capital markets. Uh, he's destroying the currency. He's destroying our country. He's destroying our liberty. He's destroying our freedom. But that is what we're getting with a democracy. And so democracy is supposed to be this great thing. It wasn't what our founders, uh, as, as Peter Treadway said, our founders really wanted to make the world safe from democracy, not safe for democracy. But in any event, that's the way our history is evolving, and we're starting to pay a very dear price for that, in my view, as well. John Williams, I think, really uh, did uh, really did a great job of explaining how he calculates inflation and why the government's numbers are really bogus and why those numbers, if you really are looking at a constant standard of living, why the numbers that the government use uh, uses are really very phony and very false. And this is very, very important because it's creating the illusion that things are not nearly as bad as they really are. And if you want to try to hide yourself from reality, then how can you fix the problems that you have? Well, it's worse than that because the policymakers are hiding reality from the people who vote. And so it's a whole propaganda game that is being played uh, day in and day out, I'm afraid. And John Williams, I think, uh, did an excellent job of explaining why inflation is closer to 8 or 9% rather than the 1.7%. And you know, what really convinced me that John's numbers are closer to being reality than the government's numbers is if you look at those, if you look at a chart of consumer sentiment, whether it's the Michigan survey or the other one uh, that John brings out in his newsletter, escapes my memory right now, the name of the other consumer uh, sentiment, report that comes out frequently, uh, those numbers look exactly like the numbers uh, that are in John's adjusted GDP, John's adjusted standard of living charts. Um, well, I, I just, uh, I guess we're just about out of time. My engineer is telling me we have less than a minute left right now. Um, I just would like to mention also uh, in passing, well, I guess I don't have time. Just to, oh, one more thing. Um, we mentioned um, gold. Uh, we, we mentioned, uh, we mentioned the Grasso group, uh, now with, uh, with respect to that group and Joe Grasso and, uh, Blue Sky Uranium. I just wanted to mention that stock as it was a sponsor of this show recently. Some real, uh, real, I think, important drilling going on down there now. Reva is financing this at seven and a half percent, a seven and a half cent stock. I think a company you also want to watch very closely. I'm very, very bullish on that and purchased it myself. I do have to tell you that that's all the time we have. Next week, Dr. Chris Martinson is going to be with us uh, to talk about his book, The Crash Course. I expect to have Eric Coffin, an excellent newsletter writer and analyst of uh, mining stocks with me, and possibly Dr. Suzanne Zetner will be with us to talk about her all-in-one preparedness site. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my uh, producer, and also Matt Widener, my engineer, for making the show uh, logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.